since it's Women's Sunday, I'm going to focus on scriptures about women. And as I started this, I, the very first one comes in Genesis chapter 1, 27. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a wide variety of stories about women in the Bible. Some of them are just really inspiring. Some of them are tragic. And some of them are quite disturbing. In the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, we see through Jesus Christ the circle of inclusiveness being drawn around women who were considered unworthy in their own culture. One source reports that there are more than 435 scriptures that talk about women or groups of women. Many of those individuals are named, but many go unnamed. They're identified simply as someone's wife or daughter, or they're identified where they're from, like the Samaritan woman, or what they are doing, like the women at the tomb. You remember they had no legal status in those times, and so this was their identity. Yet the scriptures give us some interesting insights. If you would go to Numbers chapter 27, you'll find that what women did there changed a law. A man named Zelophehad died while the Israelites were out in the wilderness. Now he had five daughters, but no sons. And in those days, only sons could inherit. But the daughters of Z went to Moses and said, we want our father's inheritance. And Moses was wise enough not to just give them a quick answer, but he went to God. And God told Moses to say to the Israelites, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance to his daughter. Their request, their boldness, made it possible for a law of inheritance to be changed. This morning, I'm just going to touch briefly on a couple of stories. These are familiar to most of you, but I'm uh, sharing them with you because they were important to my faith journey, and I'm hoping that as you hear them again, that you will identify with them in some way, or think about other stories in the Bible that really speak to your faith journey. The first one is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 41. It's from a version called The Message. As they, Jesus and the disciples, continued their travel, Jesus entered a village a woman by the name of Martha welcomed him and made him feel quite at home. She had a sister, Mary, who sat before the master, hanging on every word he said. But Martha was pulled away by all she had to do in the kitchen. Later, she stepped in, interrupting them. Master, don't you care that my sister has abandoned the kitchen to me? Tell her to lend me a hand. The master said, Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much and getting yourself worked up over nothing. Only one thing is essential, and Mary has chosen it. 
It's the main course, and it won't be taken from her. Now, this story of Martha and Mary is one that um, I always hesitate to share because I want to be a Martha. I wanted to be a Martha, but I was most definitely a Mary. Oh, I wanted to be a Mary, but I was a Martha. Let me get this straight. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a Martha. I'm named <laughs> I was named right because I knew what to do as a wife and mother. I knew that the kids needed to get to school and activities, the house needed to be cleaned, and I had a million tasks, and I liked it because I knew what was expected of me. I could just go down that checklist. And then God called me into ordained ministry. My parents, and I will tell you at the time I was 40 years old, my parents were horrified. They could not believe that I would consider leaving my poor husband and teenage children for a few days a week to go to seminary. But like the Martha in Luke's story, in the midst of my everyday life, everything changed when I realized that the main thing, the only thing, that I needed to concentrate on was my relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you see, it's that relationship with Christ that allows us to be transformed in God's love and grace. Putting Christ first helps us let go of all those things that distract us. Maybe our jobs, our family, our leisure activities. Jesus isn't asking us to choose between a life of servitude and a life of contemplation. Both are important, but most important is our relationship with Jesus so he can dwell so deeply in our heart that we cannot help but honor God with what we do rather than being caught up in frenzied activity. The second story I'm sharing comes from John chapter 4. It's actually most of chapter 4. It's the woman at the well, and I know you've heard this preached on before. But just briefly, she's uh, in an impossible kind of situation. She comes to the well, and then Jesus is there. She's at the well at noon, which she shouldn't have been. Jews and Samaritans aren't supposed to speak with one another. Even men and women who were related to each other weren't to speak to each other in public. Yet one of the longest conversations Jesus has with anyone is with her. Then there's Jesus' behavior in this situation. He is risking his reputation, talking to a woman that has had many husbands and is living with yet another man. But he engages her in conversation by asking her for a drink of water. Then he says he is the living water. He has a theological discussion with her. And eventually he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. This is just an amazing thing to happen. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's basically an outcast, and yet she is one of the first people to whom he reveals he is the Messiah. 
the disciples return from their uh, errand and they're just shocked. One scripture says they, uh, they looked at the situation with jaw-dropping amazement. And the woman took the hint and went back to the village to tell the people, come and see a man who knew everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they went to see for themselves. Because of her witness, many believed. The woman at the well was in a situation that was alien to her. And in this final story, we find Esther, who is in an alien land. This is a very complex story. It takes place in Susa, which is one of the four capitals of the great Persian Empire. It's around the 470s BC. Now, many of the Hebrew people were still in exile, but rather than the Babylonians, the Persians were now in charge. And Esther and her cousin Mordecai are among the Jews who have not returned to their home. The book of Esther does not mention the name of God, yet you see God weaving in and out throughout the characters of this story. Esther is an unlikely hero. She's a foreigner, a Jew, and an orphan. In this, she reflects the Hebrew people in exile. But she's also a woman, another notch down. She's fortunate her, her cousin Mordecai had taken her in and offered her a protected life because of that. On the advice of her cousin, she ends up being in a group of women who come before the king, Xerxes, in a kind of contest. You see, Xerxes had dismissed his other queen because she wouldn't dance for his drunken friends. So he got rid of her, and he called all these beautiful women in, kind of a Persian version of The Bachelor. <laughs> Esther's cousin decides that, uh, Mordecai decides that this, this kind of life this living in a protected and pampered environment would be good for Esther, so he encourages her to be among those women. And for a year, she is pampered and prepared, and she is chosen queen. Now, at this point in the story, she doesn't appear to have any particular power. She's not reigning with the king. She doesn't have a male heir, so um, she's just kind of there. She has mentioned to the king that Mordecai heard about a plot to kill the king, and that information saved the king's life and was written in the king's history book. Now, you have to know this king had a rather short memory. He couldn't seem to have his attention on anything for any span of time, and he forgot immediately about Mordecai saving his life. And his prime minister, who was an evil man called Haman, comes to the king and says, I want all the Jews to be annihilated. And this king, whose life was saved by Mordecai, gives his stamp of approval. 
Haman requested this because he was angry with Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow down to Haman, who was so self-centered and egotistical, he thought everybody should bow down to him. Well, the story goes on with Mordecai being in mourning about this annihilation. Finally, he and Esther begin to talk about it. Esther says, what can I do? And she really doesn't want to go to the king because to go unbidden could mean her death. But Mordecai asks her to do it anyway. He says, you're in the position, even though you haven't revealed you're Jewish yet, you are in the position of being both Jewish and the queen. And these are the words he uses to convince Esther. We find them in Esther chapter 4, 14. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. This is a very complex story, but the short of it is that Esther does go before the king. She sets up some dinners with the king and Haman, and she tricks Haman. And finally, the evil Haman is hanged on the very gallows that he built to hang Mordecai. And the Jewish people are saved. Esther's stand for justice is remembered each year at the festival of Purim. So the question is, what do we do at such a time as this? We are called male and female to stand for God's love in this world. When you hear the words that Aaron spoke this morning about the hatred that is in our own community, it is clear that God is calling us to stand in this world. For such a time as this, we are called to stand. We are called to stand like the women in this congregation who go into Indianapolis in a strip bar just to let those women know that God is present with them and loves them. We are called to stand like those that we work at Teeter Farm to eliminate hunger, whether it's a UMW circle or the men and women that go on a regular basis to help at Teeter and to help at the Gleaners food pantry. We are called to stand like the Muslim groups that are raising money for that synagogue shooting victims, the synagogue in Pittsburgh. We are called to stand against battered women and children or those who use them for sex and labor trafficking. And we are called to stand for all the organizations around us, and there are many that rescue them. We are called to stand against hate, racism, anti-Semitism, any discrimination. And we are called to stand for a United Methodist Church that has the courage in such a time as this 
to truly shine in God's love and grace for all. So tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?